All right, if you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We've, we're, not, we're not out of that chapter yet. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As you are turning there, um, I had no idea that there was red paint in the bathroom. Um, thank you, Trey, for letting us know about that so that we don't have anybody freaking out. Um, so... Don't come to me. I had no idea. First uh, Timothy one, verse eight. If you're there, say word. All right, I'll wait. First <laughs> Timothy one. All right, if you're there, say word. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead and stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. We're just looking at four verses this morning, verses eight through eleven. It says this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would add a blessing on your word this morning. We pray that you will use me as you see fit as your messenger of the gospel. Uh, Lord, pray that we were able to apply this to our lives. We ask this in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we began to look at how Paul tells Timothy to deal with false teachers. And I asked you the question last week. I I asked you, how do you know that what I or anyone for that matter is preaching the truth of God's word? How do you know that whoever is behind this pulpit is preaching that truth? How do you know that whoever you see on TV or whatever sermon you come across or whoever you see preaching on Instagram, whatever it may be, how do you know that that is truly the truth of God's Word? My first response last week was, in order for us to be able to identify these false teachers for the purpose that we may confront and correct them out of love... If we are to do that, we must be a people who are dedicated to sound teaching. We must be a people who are dedicated to the Word. People who are dedicated to know what this Word means truthfully. Because, here's the thing, false teachers will take this Word, they will start with this Word, and then they will go every which way with it. And will not be teaching truly what the Word is Saying, And I know that seems difficult sometimes. How in the world can I know if they're using the word that it's truthful or not? Well, that's where it comes for you and your discipleship as you dive into God's word and as you study it for yourself. It's where you come into play here as a gathered body of believers where we seek to declare the word so that you may know and understand what is being taught. This is how we or able to face false teachers. And the thing is, is these false teachers, as we saw last week, they're not dedicated to sound teaching. 
They're dedicated to myths and genealogies. They're dedicated to these things that are a waste of time. They're trying to figure things out. And we talked about how there are people within our world today who are doing that. Mathematically trying to figure out through the scripture when the last day is. There, uh, we got the Book of Mormon out that is saying that, that, that this Bible is not enough. We need more books. We've got, we've got so many things in our world today that are false. And one of the biggest ones we're dealing with is this idea of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that tells us that you're sick, you're dying, you're not wealthy because you don't have enough faith. And that is a horrible heresy that we're dealing with, even within our own community. Here we are being confronted with false teachers. And Paul tells us in verse 7 that these teachers are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They themselves are not understanding what they're teaching. Why? Because they are wrongly using the teaching of the law. So Paul is showing us in these next four verses what the right use of the law is. And that's the title of my sermon for today. The right use of the law. Now we're going to look at the law. And for those of you that probably are not aware, the law is good. And is meaningful and useful. And we are not to look at the law in any kind of disdain. We are to look at it in a way that is good for us. And you're going to hopefully, by the end of this message, understand that. And I'm glad that our New City Catechism ended up talking about it today. What is the requirement of the law? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. All the law was summed up in those two statements. So here's the main idea I've got for you this morning. It's this. The church needs a healthy understanding of the gospel to see the law as good and purposeful. The church needs a healthy understanding of the gospel to see that the law is good and purposeful. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, is that the law is good and purposeful. Purposeful, And he's trying to show that here in this little segue that he's using in these four verses. He's trying to show Timothy and the church at Ephesus that we are to use the law in a right way so that the gospel may be made known. You're thinking, what? I thought the gospel meant we don't need the law. Let's take a look at it. So here's number one for you. Number one, we're looking at the goodness of the law. Paul shows us that the law is good in verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, would you agree with me if I said that the law of our nation is good? Be careful. We've got a couple law enforcement officers in the room. Would you say that the law is good? Absolutely. Because there are things about the law that I feel safe. I feel protected because if you were to do something wrong, there would be justice sought out for you. The law of our nation is good. The law of God is good. 
if it is used lawfully. So that's the first one, 1A. The goodness of the law. We see that it is good if it is used rightly. It's good if it's used rightly, but these false teachings are using it wrongly. They're trying to implement this idea that an obedience to the law leads to salvation. You cannot be saved unless you obey the law. But as we just sang a couple minutes ago, we are saved in Christ alone. Not in ourselves, not in our workings of the law, not in our obedience of the law, but in Christ's obedience of the law. The law, as we're going to see, is good if it is used rightly. And we're going to see here soon how it is used rightly. But church, that's the problem with false teachers among the world today. Not only are they teaching the wrongful use of the law, they're teaching the wrongful use of Scripture. That they're totally preaching out of context. They're totally trying to tickle the ears of people that want to hear what they want to say. That's the problem we see this morning. That's the problem we see across the world, across the community. The wrongful use of Scripture. That they just want to take one verse completely out of context and try to show you how it's for you. Not only do we see that the law is good if it is used rightly, we also see that the law is good because... It reveals God's heart and will for our lives. The law reveals God's heart and will. You're thinking, wow, this seems pretty strict. I've got rules in place for my kids because I love them. (laughs) I've got a four-year-old who is like a Houdini child sometimes. Out of nowhere... We'll hear the front door shut. Where's Trevin? He ran out to the front yard, which is where traffic is, where sidewalk is. Christian Ministries is across the street. We're thinking he's probably going to go try and buy a toy. We have rules in place. Trevin, don't go out the front door, right? Yeah. We have rules in place where don't answer the door when somebody knocks. Trevin's done that too. UPS guy comes up and knocks on the door. Trevin swings it open. We have rules in place because we love our kids. We want to keep our kids safe. We want them to act a certain way. God, His law reveals His heart and will for us. It does. Psalm 19.7, it says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I mean, even even God's word is telling us that his law is good and perfect. We see in Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. In fact, all of the law is good. We can break it up into three different types of laws. You've got the civil law, the ceremonial law and the moral law. You got the civil law where Israel was a nation state that God had implemented. And these are the laws where this nation state is to abide by. It's like the laws we have. 
where even teenagers, check this out, in this law, if you drove your parents crazy by being so disobedient to them, your parents, according to the biblical civil law, could drag you kicking and screaming to the front city gates and have you stoned to death. Aren't you glad the law of our nation says parents cannot do that to their children? But biblically, they could have. So straighten up. But we are no longer under that civil law because there is no longer a nation state of Israel. Now it is the church that is implemented and Christ has fulfilled that law. We got the ceremonial law where we we were required not to eat certain things. We were required not to wear certain clothing. We were required to act certain ways. And when we were disobedient, there was a sacrificial system where we had to sacrifice certain animals at certain times for certain reasons. But according to Hebrews, there is no longer a sacrificial system because Christ is the once for all sacrifice. There is now no ceremonial law, praise God, for barbecue. Because now you can eat pork and crab legs. Some of y'all shaking y'all's head with crab legs. Are you kidding me? You don't eat crab legs? Boy. I'm thankful for crab legs because me and my wife took a day trip to the beach one time when we were dating. And my wife, who is four foot ten, she says she's four foot eleven. She's not. She's four foot ten, um, and I'm six foot four, you know, two hundred and ninety pounds. And we go to the crab leg buffet, all right. And this is my wife and I have only been dating for like a year. And my wife looks at me and she's like, "I promise you, I will out eat you in crab legs." I was like, "Girl, do you see who you're looking at? Does it look like I ain't got room for crabs? Are you serious?" She out ate me in crab legs that, that day. It was, as when I knew she was the one. <laughs> Thankfully, because of Christ, we are no longer under the ceremonial law. But what about the moral law? When we look at the Ten Commandments, are we still under that? Are we still supposed to be obeying that? What is it about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that we are to be doing? This is what Paul is getting at here. Paul is talking about the moral law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments here because we see in verses 9 through 11 that he's giving examples of that moral law. Church, this law reveals God's heart and will for our lives. He has a desire for a people to live a certain way. So we see the goodness of the law here in verses 8 through 11. Paul says it is good. He says, now we know that the law is good. He is He's showing that these false teachers are teaching a different doctrine because we know that the law is good. We've already been taught that the law is good. This is what we've been raised on. So not only is the law good, number one, number two, we see the purpose of the law in verses 9 through 11. See the purpose of the law. I'm going to pull a little bit of church history out for you here. We got Martin Luther, who we've talked about a few times here. He's the German monk who nailed the 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
He's the one that sparked the Protestant Reformation in 1517 on October 31st. Martin Luther has written about the the, uh, two purposes of the law, but has also insinuated a third purpose of the law. But then we've also got not only Martin Luther, we've got John Calvin. Now, John Calvin, who we haven't really talked about much here, was a pastor in Geneva. And just a couple decades after Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin helped continue that Reformation. And in fact, John Calvin is known for publishing probably the most influential and most important book on Protestantism with his publishing of the Institutes of the Christian Religion in the mid-1500s. And in the Institutes, he talks about three purposes of the law as well. So the three purposes that I'm going to give you are from these two guys. All right, the three purposes. The first purpose is to retain evil. To, I'm sorry, restrain evil, not retain, restrain. Probably the same word, but look at verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. This is who the law is for. The unjust, the disobedient, the people who are going to go crazy, the people who can't stop sinning, the people who are disobeying God's word continually. Church, apart from Christ, that's all of us. It's all of us. But the first, the first purpose of the law is to restrain evil so that in so doing, we may protect the community and preserve humanity. That's why we have laws today. Can you imagine if we didn't have a speed limit? Some people already think we don't have a speed limit. Can you imagine what kind of world we would be in if we didn't have that? Go to Haiti. They have no traffic laws. I have, I was, I had culture shock for three hours just because of traffic trying to get from the airport to our hotel. I was in the fetal position in the back seat wondering what is going on. Thankfully, though, we have laws and God's law for people is to help restrain evil. Why? Because sin is doing, thinking or saying anything that does not agree with the heart of God. That's what sin is. It's any way in which we go against God's heart and will for our lives. Do you know that our country has some of the weirdest laws? Have you ever Googled that? Let me give you a few examples. In Alabama, it is illegal to drive blindfolded. Yeah. It's a good law, but it's weird that we have to have that. It is illegal to drive blindfolded in Alabama. In Arizona, <laughs> check this out. It is illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. Come to find out in the 1920s, there was a dam that had flooded the city and there was a donkey that just loved to sleep in this rancher's bathtub. 
What ended up happening is, is when this flood hit the, hit this ranch, it carried the donkey in the bathtub for miles. So now it's a law that donkeys are not to sleep in bathtubs. In Louisiana, it is illegal to send a surprise pizza to somebody. I would love a surprise pizza every once in a while, but in Louisiana, you can't do that. In Montana, it's illegal to give a rat as a present, as a present. You can't gift somebody a rat. I don't know why. In Tennessee, this is for some of y'all in this room, guys. In Tennessee, it's illegal to share your Netflix password. Some of y'all are smiling because you know you're sharing it. Thankfully, in North Carolina, it's not illegal yet. But we have laws to restrain evil, to preserve humanity, and to protect community. And this is one of the purposes of God's law as well for us. There's a reason why God says, thou shalt not murder. We don't want people killing people. There's a reason why God tells us that we are not to covet. Because we don't want to be greedy and we don't want to be stealing, which is another law. There's a reason why God tells us we are not to have idols. There's a reason why God tells us we are to respect the Sabbath. There's a reason why God gives us all these laws. It's so that we may restrain evil. But not only do we see the purpose of the law to restrain evil. Secondly, we see a purpose of the law to lead to Christ. What? The law leads us to Christ? Yes. Easy answer. Yes. Verse 11 1 Timothy 1, we see in accordance, this law in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with with which I have been entrusted. In accordance with the gospel. The law leads to Jesus. Romans 7, 7 through 12. I know it's several verses, but I want to read this to you. It says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law was holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Church, we need to see that the law, as it leads to Christ, it leads to Christ because it exposes our sin. The law shows us how we are lost. It's the law that shows us that we're in need of the gospel. It's the law that shows us that we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You were born with a sinful nature. You were born already going to sin. It was going to happen. 
There is no possibility for anybody to be born and not sin except for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Church, the law exposes our sin. Galatians 3, 19 through 25, it says this. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. Church, the law exposes our sin and our need for the gospel. Martin Luther called it a mighty hammer that crushes the self-righteousness of human beings. Spurgeon once told us, he says, the law shows the distance that exists between God and man. The gospel bridges that awful chasm and brings the sinners across it. Church, when we look at the law, we are made aware what sin is. What God hates, what God likes. Remember, the the law reveals God's heart and will for our lives. And it also shows us how we are to live. But the problem is, church, the problem is that the law shows us that we're incapable of living the life that God calls us to apart from His grace. We're incapable of doing that. Calvin helps us by showing us that this purpose of the law is meant to render us inexcusable and to drive us to despair so that we flee to his mercy, hide deep within it, and seize upon it alone for righteousness and merit. Church, the law helps lead us to Jesus. The law cannot save us. But it shows us our need for salvation. Church, the law is good. The law is necessary for the gospel. Because it's the law that shows us the bad news. In order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And the law shows us that you and I are in desperate need of grace. We're in desperate need of salvation. Martin Luther, again, once said, the law discovers the disease, the gospel gives the remedy. Oof. Is that not true? Well, these false teachers are teaching in Ephesus. It is a a type of teaching that really puts a burden on people. Like, how would you feel every Sunday coming in and us preaching this massive law-driven message of saying, how good have you been this week? How much have you sinned? How much have you obeyed? 
In order to be saved, you need to obey the law. Man, let me tell you, I disobeyed before I walked into the doors this morning. I disobeyed as soon as I woke up. We just ended up, we got our our second foster child last night. So four-month-old baby. I'm sorry, it was Friday. We ended up getting him. Days are running together now, um, which is why I woke up this morning and already disobeyed. We got like four hours of sleep last night. Um, but he's a beautiful baby boy. He is. And he needs, he needs love and care right now. Church, we are sinful people. We're sinful people in need of God's grace, and the law shows us that. So not only, not only does the law lead us to Jesus, the third purpose of the law that Luther and Calvin can help us see is that the law helps to exhort believers in holiness. It helps to exhort, to teach, to train, to implore believers to be holy. This, this, this law helps us see how we are to live our lives. Spurgeon helps us here when he says, God's law is our pleasure when the God of the law is our God. Let me say that again. God's law is our pleasure, our joy, our satisfaction. God's law is our pleasure when the God of the law is our God. We want, we, we should have a desire and a joy in obeying God's law because of what Christ has done for us. Church, let me be clear. I'm not talking about legalism here. All right. Legalism is saying to, that we should obey so that we can be saved. What I'm talking about here is how the law is given to us so that we may know what God hates and what God loves and that we may joyfully obey so that we may please God not to be saved, but because we are saved. We obey God's law not to be saved, but we are saved so that we may obey God's law. Our obedience doesn't save us. Christ's obedience does. He's the one who obeyed the law to a T. He's the one who fulfilled the law. He's the one that accomplished all things on our behalf. So we may look at the law as burdensome. We may look at the law as tiresome. But let me tell you, when we look at the law, we should look at it with joy because it is the way God wants us to live. But yet we're not under the law. We're under grace because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So what does that mean for us? It means that our obedience does not cause God to love us any more or any less than He loves us right now. But obedience to God's law should be our joy because we're not under the law, we're under grace. My kids know in my home that there's nothing that they can do to cause me to love them less than I love them. And my kids know that there's nothing that they can do to cause me to want to kick them out or cause me to want to tell them they're not a part of my family anymore. I try to tell my kids every day, I love you more. Every day. Every chance I get, I try to tell them, I love you more. Because I want them to know that. I want them to see that. Because our home, I want our home to be a home of grace not a home of law and burden. But because we are a home of grace and love, 
I hope that they desire out of that love and grace to obey. Because it's my heart for their, for their lives to live and to act a certain way. Just as it's God's heart for our lives to live and to act a certain way. Church, what does holiness look like? Holiness looks like Jesus, right? As Christians, we are called to look more and more like Him. That's the goal of the Christian, to look more and more like Christ. But how is it that we can do that? Jesus obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. So we can look more and more like Jesus as we obey and desire and find joy in the law of God. Jerry Bridges, who wrote Trusting God and uh, Disciplines of Grace, I think is one of them, and a few other books. Jerry Bridges is a fantastic author. If you see any Jerry Bridges books, pick them up and read them. But one thing he says is we obey God's love. I'm sorry, we obey God's law not to be loved, but because we are loved in Christ. That's why we obey. And that's how we see the right use of the law, church, is that we look at it as a means of obedience, but not because we're under it and burdened by it, but because we are under grace. Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to love God's law because it shows us God's will and desire for our lives. So understand this, church. We are called to have a healthy understanding of the gospel so that we may be able to see that the law is good and purposeful. That's why we are devoted to sound teaching. That's why we are devoted to show you Christ through all of Scripture. There's goodness in the law if it is used rightly and, and, and because it reveals God's heart and will for our lives. And there's a purpose to the law to restrain evil, to lead us to Christ, and to exhort believers in holiness. So church, what does the law of God require? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. May we be a people of the word under grace with a joy to obey and to live in holiness. May we be a people like that. But to also understand that when we mess up and you're going to mess up, church, you're probably messing up right now because you're coveting that burger that you saw on TV yesterday. You're messing up probably. You're going to mess up when you leave this building. You're going to mess up this afternoon. And when I say mess up, let's just bluntly, you're going to sin. And disobey God. There's grace at the foot of at the foot of the cross through the one who obeyed and fulfilled the law on our behalf. May we be a people who are under grace, who joyfully obey God. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good and gracious and merciful. Lord, you sent your son to live and die for our sins. God, I pray that you would help us see that. The grace that you've provided for us, Lord. God, I pray that as we look at the law, that we do not see it as burdensome, but we see it as a means of obeying your will and seeing your heart for how we should live. 
God, I pray that through Christ, we are able to do that. Through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we are able to do that. So may we live in joy. May we live happily, satisfied in you. God, I pray that you would do a work this morning. We ask this in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.